Hello, and welcome to As My Whimsy Takes Me. I'm Sharon Shu, And I'm Karis Ellison. Today we're having a very special holiday episode. First, we're going to wrap up some of our thoughts about a natural death, because we realize that we're running out of room in just two episodes, um, and we're going to need to start expanding our discussions to three episodes. Uh, so we're going to wrap up those loose ends, and then Sharon, do you want to tell the listeners what we're going to do next? Yeah, we have a special treat. We are going to be talking about a previously unpublished Lord Peter short story that just came out this year in volume two of Bodies from the Library, which is a collection of previously unknown or rare or unpublished short stories from Golden Age Detective Great. So we'll have a discussion about that. And then we've collected some reader questions that we will be answering. Yay! Yeah, that's what we'll be doing. Yes, and thank you so much to all our listeners who sent us questions. We've got some really good ones I'm excited to get into. All right. So, Paris. So, Sharon. We were laughing earlier about how we keep telling ourselves that surely two episodes will be sufficient for <laughs> each book, but I think with, with unpleasantness at the Bologna Club, we'll, we'll definitely start expanding. To yeah, I was thinking about the book and going like, oh yeah, we're going to have a lot to talk about. We're going to have three full episodes worth of stuff. And, and maybe more. And maybe <laughs> more. We may still be going, and a few episodes ago, I remembered this thing. Yeah. So stay tuned, listeners. Oh. Um, Oh, yeah. But I did want to pick up on our long chat about casual racism last time because I think past Sharon was still formulating some thoughts Mm -hmm. and I just kind of wanted to make clear like why why I take issue I suppose with this this kind of depiction because I like when I want to excuse Sayers you Mm -hmm. know from having a bias here from sort of unthinkingly replicating something harmful like my my first instinct is like oh yeah but she's showing that these rural characters are like really provincial right or she's showing that the the country constable is kind kind of dim for falling for the frame up of Hallelujah Dawson based on these kind of racist stereotypes like she's she's letting the reader feel smarter mm-hmm. or like you know it's it's kind of part of that characterization and I think what I didn't quite get to last time was the fact that having having only your villainous or stupid characters behave racistly <laughs> is it implies that like only dumb or provincial people have these attitudes, right? Mm-hmm. When actually racial stereotype and racism is just embedded in societal structures mm-hmm. and, you know, very wealthy people, very educated people can also hold very, very harmful ideas about other races. Even people who do their best to do good things, even people who are helpful to people of other races doesn't mean that they don't have racist ideas at the same time like those two things can coexist exactly yeah and I think in some ways to depict Peter as though he's so much more enlightened Mm. than the other characters is I mean in in many ways I think very anachronistic right because Mm -hmm. I think all his wealth and privilege would actually in many ways I think buffer him from having to maybe do like anti-racist work on himself right I do feel like it's balanced out a little bit because we do see some of that casual racism come from Peter himself. Right. We see some of that casual racism come from Parker. Mm -hmm. So like that's also there. But I think that you're definitely right that a lot of times Sayers is using the more overt racism as a shorthand, Mm -hmm. especially for like, oh, this is a bad character or this is 
maybe not a bad, but a stupid character or short-sighted. Mm-hmm. Right. Or villainous. And yeah, there's been a lot of discourse, I think, in the last few years about like, you know, queer coding villains, which we certainly talked about as well in our mm-hmm. conversation or using, you know, using fatness as a shorthand for this is a bad character. And like all of these things are part of like the cultural soup that we <laughs> swim in. And I think it's just, it's important, you know, for you and me and our own work of anti-racism to to call out like when, when this happens, mm-hmm. right? In the literature that we very much love. I definitely think that you know, sometimes people are like, oh, well, why can't you just let it go? Or, <laughs> you know, understand it was a different time. And it's like, but, you know, we, we're still reading these books. So I, I, I just think it's important for us to talk about. So yeah, that's, that's my little coda, I suppose, on <laughs> that particular conversation. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that that's really important. And it's like, you can love something and talk about what's wrong with it. And I think that's part of bringing a critical eye to what you read, right? And I, think that that you know that's something that Sayers would support she was all for reading things critically exactly to take us somewhere entirely different (laughs) and now for something (laughs) completely different yeah since we were talking about how we noticed that the names in this book are sometimes kind of punny right like so Bertha go to bed Vera Finlitter she she finds the truth too late or you know she's she's also her body is found later far be it from me to you know ascribe authorial intention or to uh, imply that Sayers had a dirty mind. But did you notice that when the entire case is wrapped up, they mention who the inheritance ends up going to? I did not notice. Okay, I was going to ask if you noticed his name. So Peter asks Parker, how about the rest of the money? Will the crown get it after all? Because it's been that whole, you know, inheritance law thing. Parker replies, no, unless she wills it to someone, it will go to the Whitaker next of kin. A first cousin, I believe, called Alcock. <laughs> a very a very decent fellow living in Birmingham. And I'm like, oh, that's 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 interesting in this book of spinsters. You know, we the the guy who ends up getting all the money is all cock. Mm. <laughs> oh, so, sorry mom, don't listen to this part. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Sharon's anyway. mom for snickering. <laughs> Those were just the two parts that, you know, <laughs> just wanted to pick up on the racism and the and the uh the dirty pun. <laughs> Very important, very mm-hmm. important things to talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, did you did you have a favorite line? I realized we forgot to talk about that last. I don't know if I have like a favorite single line, but I do have a favorite moment. Mm, please tell. It's one of those little throwaway lines, but it's when Peter and Mister Murbles go to meet Bertha Godebed's sister. Mm-hmm. You know how I love uh, Mister Murbles. Yes. <laughs> It's the bit where they get onto the train and Mr. Murbles is like Peter has run off because Mrs. Cropper thought that she saw Miss Whitaker. And so Peter has run off to see about that. And Mr. Murbles is just like just being a, a little elderly gentleman and he's getting the ladies all settled in the like, train carriage. And he exchanges his old fashioned top hat for a curious kind of traveling cap with flaps to it. And Mrs. Cropper, in the midst of her anxiety, could not help wondering where in the world he had contrived to purchase this Victorian relic. As a matter of fact, Mr. Murble's caps were especially made to his own design by an exceedingly (laughs) expensive West End hatter, who held Mr. Murble's in deep respect as a real gentleman of the old school. 
It's just the cutest little detail. He's so delightful. He's helping Peter with this case. You know, everything's incredibly dangerous. And he has time to, to change out for his traveling cap. When we were talking about Clouds of Witness, I don't think we actually ever talked about the bit where Peter and Lady Mary and Parker and Sir Impey, you know, like they all go and have dinner in Mr. Murble's, mm, his, mm-hmm. his rooms. And... Mr. Murbles is just being so cute about it. You know, he, like, he's so delighted to have Lady Mary there. He's just like, oh, this is the first time I've entertained a lady in I don't know how many years. Yeah. Just, he's just precious. Oh, Mr. Murbles, you old rascal. You just want to put him in your pocket. <laughs> and he doesn't bat an eye at being part of Lord Peter's investigation scheme. Never. I, he's Never. just, yeah. he's so game. He's a game old bird. <laughs> My favorite line actually also involves Mr. Murble. <laughs> it's at the end of that chapter after Mrs. Cropper has sort of like relayed the information mm-hmm. about, you know, making the will and so forth. And there's this amazing line that says, so it's like right after she finishes her, you know, her recital, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And it says, Mr. Murbles was very slowly rotating his hands over one another with a dry rustling sound, like an old snake gliding through the long grass in search of prey. Mm. And that is just like, especially coming right after the, you know, the old fashioned traveling yeah. cap and, and his like fussiness over the ladies. It's, it's such a beautiful, I feel like hit of characterization mm. of like, oh no, this guy is actually really, really intelligent and yeah. Ooh, so you good. know kind of like yeah like on the hunt now yeah so. it's like you're just like oh he, he is a really good lawyer yeah like it's, like it's this not is why peter brought him in <laughs> yeah it's like it's not telling you anything about like how good he is in a courtroom or whatever but it's just like that implication that ooh, he's a predator also he's like an old snake ooh, so good yes hmm. he's a precious little old man and also and also a snake <laughs> <laughs> Yes, that's wonderful. Yes. Well. I think there is one more thing that we meant to talk about in our last episode and missed. Yeah? Which is that the original U.S. title of Unnatural Death, it wasn't first published as Unnatural Death in the States. Mm -hmm. When it was first published in America, it was under the title The Dawson Pedigree. Yes. Which... Um, like on its own, I'm just like, oh, yeah, that seems like a good title, but it's a terrible title for this book because it <laughs> spoilers gives, galore gives away so much just immediately. Yeah, yeah, it really. I mean, it's sort of similar to how there's like an editorial note that's you know a, a genealogical table has been provided at the end of the book it comes i think two or three chapters before they actually really start getting into the dawson family tree Mm. and it's you know and if you like trace it down you see all the all the distant cousins and stuff and it's like why what Mm. (laughs) why put it there yeah (laughs) so my like very lurid 1960s (laughs) edition still has it like in small print underneath (laughs) unclude a picture for our our listeners because they should really enjoy this this cover with me. <laughs> yes, is that's the one that we, you got in the used bookstore. Yeah, when we were together. Of course, it has a, a very you know a picture of a Bertha go to bed dead mm-hmm. in the woods as its illustration and not not an old lady because yeah you know marketing. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting that I think that most of the covers I've seen for Unnatural Death really focus on like the Epping Forest murder. I'm looking at the copy that I have here, which is the new edition from Hotter Books. They've got the new series with these these lovely new covers. 
Yes, we're uh, collecting them all. <laughs> yes. And the cover illustration on this one, you know, it's a picnic basket with branches mm-hmm. over it. Mm-hmm. Not a picture of Bertha Go to Bed's body, but it's still referencing that specific part of the book. Were the Kathy Black covers, did they have an old woman in a bed? I can't remember. Um, I don't know. Okay, I'm going to do a quick Google. I'm not sure what edition I had of Unnatural Death mm-hmm. before I got the hotter one uh, because I can't find it. I think I gave it to someone to read and it's probably floating around the house somewhere. Mm-hmm. All my Harper Torch mass markets are in my parents' basement where moth and rust doth destroy. <laughs> huh, this is interesting. There's one, this isn't the Kathy Black, but there's one with a body on a bed, but there's like bright red blood around its head. That doesn't make any so sense. Like, no, it doesn't. <laughs> that doesn't have anything to do with anything. That has nothing to do with anything. That okay. reminds me of like a Clouds of Witness cover that I saw where it was just like, ooh, a spooky moor. And then there was like a ghostly cat. <laughs> over it but it was like an actual cat not a jewelry cat and i'm just like someone huh. knew enough about the book to knew to know that a cat was important but did not understand that it wasn't a cat did cat. not follow up in any way <laughs> yeah yeah so but i think let let's collect uh some images of a unnat- different unnatural death covers and we can share those with our listeners and see see how many seem to match the book Sounds good. Yeah, we'll we'll put it in the show notes and probably also on on our social media. Yes. So be on the lookout for that, listeners. <laughs> so on to what we are actually supposed to be talking about yes. this episode. <laughs> the focus of this episode, which is the locked room. Yes. So Karth, you did some some background correspondence. Yes. Uh, on pre- this, preparing yeah. for this episode, I got in touch with. Tony Medawar, who very graciously agreed to chat with me online. He's the editor of the Bodies from the Library anthologies, which The Locked Room appears in Bodies from the Library 2. So there's also Bodies from the Library in the first anthology, and he told me that there's going to be a volume 3 coming out next year Ooh. in 2020. Will there be another Sayers in it? Or? I cannot tell you that. Okay. <laughs> I can tell you that there is going to be a Nio Marsh, which Ooh. that would mean more to you if you had done your homework. I have still not. <laughs> but there's an unpublished Nio Marsh short story featuring uh, her detective, Roderick Allen. He did hint that as the the series of Bodies from the Library anthologies continue, he's hopeful that Dorothy L. Sayers will feature in, in a future volume. Ooh, very nice. So hopefully we have some more unpublished or rare Sayers to look forward to. So as you said, the Bodies from the Library anthologies are collections of stories that even big fans of Golden Age detective authors aren't familiar with just because they haven't had access to them because, you know, maybe they were published one time in a magazine Mm -hmm. and then didn't appear anywhere else. And so they haven't been collected or, you know, maybe they were never published before. Mm -hmm. I asked Tony Medawar how he got started finding these stories. And I thought it's so interesting because he just said that he, he loved detective stories and it occurred to him that there must be more (laughs) he's just like 
there there had to be more. And so he started looking for them and just started going to archives, tracking down old magazines. And I'm just like, that's the coolest hobby. Yeah. And you can find a transcript of my conversation with Tony Medawar in our show notes. So you can read, you know, in more detail his answers to my questions and learn a little bit more about these great anthologies and what's coming up next. I have to put in a plug for special collections in university archives that hold these papers because I feel like they really preserve so so much ephemera that would otherwise kind of be lost yeah and I side note there's a novel by A.S. Byatt I really love called Possession and it's uh, like the the plot kind of revolves around an academic Mm -hmm. like finding a letter shoved inside a portfolio (laughs) in an unlabeled box in like a university archive and when I first read it in high school I was like that's absurd this is like you know really stretching the imagination and then in undergrad, one of my campus jobs was actually I worked in the special collections at my university and was immediately like, oh, no, this is the most plausible setup ever. <laughs> like, <they> just... <laughs> I love possession. Yeah, I really so need good. to reread that. Mm, yeah, uh... for our next podcast. <laughs> <laughs> how, how many next podcasts do we have now for? I don't know. Yeah, we'll have to collect them all. <laughs> Right. But so this particular story is held, uh, I think, still privately, right? But the... Right. The manuscript is in a private collection, but a copy is held at the Marion E. Wade Center at Wheaton College in Illinois. Because they have most of Sayers' papers, of course. Yeah. So... I suppose, like, we should warn our listeners immediately that, like, given that it's a short story, that there's not much more we can say that's not giving away the plot. The who- yeah. <laughs> I mean, we can kind of hold back the who done it, but the mm-hmm. who done it isn't really the point of this story. No. Uh, so for our listeners who prefer to go into what you're reading completely fresh without knowing too much about it. Hopefully you have already gotten your hands on a copy of Bodies from the Library 2. If not, I hope that you'll seek it out. Please, please go read the book. You can buy it online. We'll include links. You can request it at your local library, share it with a friend, and read this short story so that you can come back and listen to this part of the episode without spoiling we yourself. spoil everything. We're about to spoil everything. <laughs> Um, If you haven't read the short story, you do want to be surprised, check our show notes. Um, We'll let you know like where to skip forward if you just want to hear the Q&A portion that we're going Mm -hmm. to do after this. But (laughs) I'm just like, oh, we can't really not. We can't talk about it. I didn't plan that out. No, it's all right. Goodbye, listeners. (laughs) So Sharon, let's talk about The Locked Room. Yes. So you and I, we both read it and kind of immediately went, where does this fit in uh-huh. with the Peter that we know? We both kind of were guessing that it had to be early. Yeah. Because there are certain aspects of his personality that feel like not quite yet formed, I think. Mm-hmm. Should we start by giving our listeners just a like a really brief sketch of the premise of the story? Yes. So it's a very classic locked room mystery in that the premise is that Peter is out once again in a country house (laughs) (laughs) off on like a you know nice weekend with some friends and uh, there's only really a handful of characters and he kind of falls in with this young woman Betty Carlisle who's also a guest his hosts are Mr. and Mrs. Deerhurst and there is another gentleman there who is also uh, a veteran of the war 
named Severin. So they're all, you know, they're all together. And basically, Mr. Deerhurst receives word that this horse that he'd, you know, placed all this money on has been, I think, injured in in training. So he's like, oh, by God, I'm ruined, mm-hmm. sort of dashes off to his study. And Betty Carlisle and Lord Peter have kind of this conversation where she's like, oh, no, I think, you know, he might do some damage to himself. And Peter says, you know, not not to worry, like, he doesn't strike me as the type of person to commit suicide over this. And Peter toddles off to bed. And the next morning, Bunter brings him the news that Mr. Deerhurst was found dead in his library. All the doors are locked, all the windows are locked. And yeah, and then a brief investigation ensues. Uh, listeners, your final warning. <laughs> <laughs> so the rest of the story continues on to where the the local constable and so forth come and return a, a very quick judgment of like, oh, you know, we found the cartridge shell. We mm-hmm. uh, Everything seems sort of sufficient to return a, a judgment that it was suicide. And then I think like a year later, Betty Carlisle comes to Lord Peter and says, okay, I have to know who actually killed Uncle Arthur. Mm-hmm. And he's, you know, a little bit startled that she's come to the same conclusions as he has. But at that point, he does the couple of pages of the reveal mm-hmm. um, of how he knows that it was, in fact, Severin, who was having an affair with Mrs. Deerhurst, who committed murder. Mm-hmm. And I think the thing that is maybe most relevant to the conversations that we've been having so far is that this is a story in which we see Peter withhold the identity of a murderer even though he knows who did it and I think that's that's really interesting given how much we've been talking about his like pursuit of truth and his you know his insistence on enacting justice Mm -hmm. even even when he's like sympathetic yeah well and you know like he doesn't just withhold the name of the murderer you know it's not like he declines to tell the police his conclusions he hides evidence Mm-hmm. Like he takes evidence from a crime scene at like, like he deliberately conceals mm-hmm. the murderer. Yeah. The identity of the murderer. Like he makes a very deliberate decision. And yeah, that really seems so at odds with the Peter that we know, you know, like the Peter that I feel like we've been discussing. Mm-hmm. And as we mentioned, you and I, we were like, we both read this short story and we were immediately like, so I wonder when this was written. Like, <laughs> Where was Peter in his development as a character? Um, So Mm -hmm. I got in touch with the archivist at the Wade Center. I corresponded with Laura Schmidt, the archivist there, and learned from her that the best date that they have for the manuscript version of this short story is 1924. So they believe that that's uh, when this story was probably written. So... After Whose Body Was Published, but before Clouds of Witness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, extremely early. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really interesting that then this story wasn't published during Sayer's lifetime. Mm -hmm. And like during, you know, there are a couple of like collected Lord Peter short stories Mm -hmm. um, that she was putting out, I think, like in magazines and then eventually in a, yeah, in like its own volume and that she didn't include this one, right? Yeah, that maybe she was writing the story and then decided that it didn't reflect what she wanted to do with Lord Peter as a character. Mm -hmm. You know, because the premise of the story is him concealing this evidence and making this decision to hide the truth. Mm -hmm. And I can really imagine that thought process 
of her writing this story because it's an interesting premise. Mm-hmm. Kind of sets it up where it gives a chance for the reader to see all the clues. You know, that thing Sayers loves doing where she's like, here are all the clues. Right. Did you figure out which ones were important? And then, you know, and then shows you all the pieces and how they fit together. Yeah, because she shows she shows that scene of Peter being in the library with mm-hmm. the like local police officers and the uh, the inquest agent or like the medical examiner. And she describes in a very detailed way, like his actions, you know, he's looking down at the rug, he casually plucks a volume of Aquinas from the bookshelf. Uh, but yeah. it's not until later that you realize it's, he, you know, he, he realizes where the stray bullet's gone and so forth. Yeah, that the whole time he's standing where he is so that they don't see the bullet hole in the book. That he takes the book away with him so that they don't find the bullet that's lodged in the book. Mm-hmm. You know, that he has his foot on that spot in the carpet because he's standing on the shell casing. So it's a clever story in that sense. Like, it's not a complicated mystery. No. Um, but it's a clever story in the sense of showing all the clues to the audience without giving anything away. Which, mm-hmm. you know, Sayers was so good at doing. Yeah. And it's also Peter has kind of these interludes with Betty Carlisle and they're fun character portraits. Mm-hmm. He's quite the uh, the charmer, I have to say. Right. I, I wrote um, in my in one of my margin notes, I was just like, this is kind of the, the only time we really see kind of Peter the womanizer. Mm-hmm. Like not to say like womanizer in like a pejorative sense because... I'm I'm sure that in all his relationships with women, Peter was is perfect gentleman. A perfect gentleman, <laughs> you know. But we get the impression that he has this reputation as you know a dilettante, and mm-hmm. you know, like there's a reference to him having continental ideas. So you know, like he has a history of relationships with women that we don't see rare like never on the page right in the novels it's always alluded to of like oh yes you know he'd taken up with this like yeah viennese the viennese singer yeah (laughs) uh but here we do see like he again it's like never explicit but there you have to read into the dialogue Mm -hmm. but it's very clear that he is at the very least kissing betty carlisle like every Mm -hmm. opportunity he can yeah despite the fact that she tells him he's yeah she's like oh i'm engaged but we can kiss yeah and you're such a good kisser (laughs) it's nice that talking about continental attitudes yeah but like we see that very different side of peter that doesn't show up certainly in the novels i can't think of any examples in the short stories that doesn't mean that there are none but Mm -hmm. i can't think of any so this is a different peter than the one that we see in the novels and i can yeah like i said i can really imagine this being done kind of as an exercise and then sayers deciding to put it aside because she realized that the character wasn't going the way that felt correct you know Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. that, that writer thing, we were just like, mm, this doesn't sound like this. Right, right. Yeah. And I'm really glad she didn't keep going in this direction because I think... Yeah, I think Peter would have been less interesting. Yeah. There's something a bit like expected or cardboard, I think, yeah. about him here. It's a little bit more generic of a character. And, you know, I was thinking a couple of people when we asked for questions, we had, I think at least two people asked us to talk about how we feel about Agatha Christie. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was thinking about that, and I like Agatha Christie a lot, but I don't latch on to Christie the way that I latched on to Sayers. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that I love a good mystery, but what matters to me in Sayers is the way that she wrote characters and the way that she explored her characters' emotions and just all like all these uh, like the the feelings we're here for feelings um and christy was a very good writer who wrote very good mysteries but she didn't have that she didn't focus on that in the same way so for me as a reader her characters fall flatter because i don't they don't have that same draw mm-hmm. well it's like you can often pick up a christy and it doesn't you don't necessarily need to read in the chronological publication order, mm-hmm. right? Like one Miss Marple is very similar to another. Yeah. One Poirot is very similar to another. And so there's not that same, I think, arc of development that makes reading the Whimsy series in order so rewarding. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, I don't know, going back to like our conversations about how often the detective represents a kind of like outside authority. And mm-hmm. I think the thing about authority and state authority, right, is that it's like, in a lot of ways, that apparatus can never be seen to change. It has to be, Mm. like, almost as unchanging as God, right? Right. As static as possible is. Yeah, yeah. In order to, I don't know, to like reinforce the ideas of law and justice and Mm -hmm. so forth. And so I think it's really interesting that Peter he's I mean, he's not quite like a trickster figure, but he's he's so against type in that Mm -hmm. way. And I think even in this story, like part of the reason he conceals the evidence is because he is making a distinction between like what the law says needs to be done and what Mm -hmm. he thinks is just because it really his reading of the situation is that Mrs. Deerhurst sort of drove her lover Mm -hmm. into like a jealousy so that he would kill her husband for her. So he's so I think in Peter's mind, it's like, well, here's this other shell shocked veteran who's Mm -hmm. fallen in with the wrong woman. And he's, he's like the finger that pulls the trigger, but he's not the heart that made the intent. Right. And that to him is why he's not going to turn this guy in. Right. He just, he's, he really sees Severin as just this poor sap. Yeah. Yeah. And in his mind, it's like, well, I can't, you know, the law is not going to come for Mrs. Deerhurst, but Mm -hmm. justice should. And so he really makes a differentiation between those two those two pillars, right? That the law does not always serve justice. Yeah. I think the Mrs. Deerhurst character and kind of like the love triangle between her husband and Severin, it's really interesting to me. And we can't talk about this too much because it would be spoilers for Five Red Herrings. (laughs) Uh, But this does feel like a precursor to some of the relationships that we see in Five Red Herrings. Sorry, all I remember from Fried Red Herrings is like timetables. I'm like, are there relationships? Are there? There are. There are relationships. There's a woman in Five Red Herrings who this is kind of a a subplot. There, you know, like there's a married woman who has this idea about, you know, like she really ascribes the idea of like the woman being the angel in the home and like that Mm -hmm. she has a responsibility to make things beautiful and restful and And easy, uh, right? And so like she's not the same character is mrs deerhurst who is described as someone who loves fuss like what she loves is to create a fuss and create a row and she's someone who loves drama and it and like she 
like probably doesn't even do it intentionally, but she is the type of person who is constantly creating drama. Right. And we like I think we all have known people like that. <laughs> They're so exhausting. If there's not drama going on around them, they will find some. They'll make some. Yeah. Yeah. And if you told them that they make drama, they would never believe you. But and and Peter does remark about Mrs. Deerhurst that she's or or about I think about Severin, right? That like mm-hmm. he he has one idea about women that they should be yeah. protected and they should be and so he can't it's like he can't recognize that the woman that he's having this affair with is like manipulating him because he he mm-hmm. can't he like couldn't even fathom the idea that women could be manipulative, I guess. Yeah. That that leads into another interesting point. Skipping aside from the the five red herrings connection, because I don't know that there's much more I can say without giving too much about that book yeah. away. And we haven't, we're not even there yet. <laughs> but one of the things that I do think is really interesting in this short story, and that really reflects a theme in Sayer's other work, is that Severin is not the only man who has one idea about what women are, right? Mm-hmm. Betty Carlyle actually tells Peter that... What does she say? She's kind of talking about both men and saying that they, you know, like they both think that women are only one thing. Mm-hmm. And they think that, that men who think that they know all about women usually know about one woman and their mistake is assuming that all women are the same. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is very interesting and kind of like very indicative of things that Sayers continues to think about. You know, like there's that famous Sayers quote that I see people reference a lot because it's such a good one where um she says that men often ask her like how do you how do you write men so well she's just like i just write them as people (laughs) you know like she's just like people often or i think she says something that people often assume that she must have like a brother or you know Mm -hmm. because she writes and men she because she writes men so well having you know like when they're having private conversations that don't involve women and she's just like i just assume (laughs) <laughs> that they're people, you know, like women are also. Yeah. It's really refreshing given that, you know, often male creators are like, how did you write women? I mean, how do you write women? How do you write women? What is a woman? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah. And she's, I, you know, I think she, she mentions that in um, her essay, Are Women Human? Right? Yeah. And she, I believe that that's where also, that quote's from. Yeah. And she also says like, nobody, like no human being wants to be, told that they are like representative of their entire gender right that's not that's not a respectful thing to do to like Mm -hmm. extrapolate you know one woman's behavior to to make generalizations about all womankind yeah yeah i'll find the exact quote so that we can put those in our our show notes for this episode so listeners listen check please check the show notes we're gonna have for, so many. <laughs> we're gonna have. We're gonna be very long shows for this episode. But yes, listeners, please check the show notes uh, to get the exact quotes um, and references for for these things that we're paraphrasing. Yeah. But yeah. Was this, there anything else? Well, like I'm just kind of like going through my uh, margin notes here, and mm-hmm. there are like so many little things. You know, like when I first sat down and read this short story, I was really focused on like Peter as a character. Mm-hmm. And going like, oh, you know, like this is interesting, but also a little bit weird because this is a Peter story, but it doesn't quite feel like Peter, you know, so like I was really focused on the character aspect. Mm-hmm. And then like when I sat down to make proper notes on it, because I'm a professional who always makes notes on <laughs> things, there were so many like good lines 
mm-hmm. and you know and like good little bits and like the, you know the thing that Sayers does where she'll make a subtle reference and you're just like oh this is kind of like without probably without it being like a big thing she'll make a reference that just creates a connection in the in your mind mm-hmm. to kind of like guide you into seeing things a certain way and so it was just interesting kind of like going through the story and just seeing that skill mm-hmm. even so early on yeah yeah it's so it's such an early story and it's not as strong as her later work is in terms of the character writing but the skill level in like the writing itself is definitely here mm-hmm. there's one part where like peter is observing mrs deerhurst and he thinks of her as amelia sudley in the robes in the robes of cleopatra Mm, that's so good yeah and vanity fair reference yes the reference to vanity fair and then you have the reference to cleopatra who you know like it's unfair to i think to the actual historical personage of cleopatra (laughs) but it does bring up that idea of a temptress you know, or mm-hmm. like a, a woman who seduces men until until they do outrageous things. Right. Yeah. And, it, you know, like it also very subtly brings up the idea of suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, definitely. And yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, and like driving men to suicide. And mm-hmm. so like, I'm just like, that's a little subtle, like almost red herring thing. And so I'm like, there's just several little things like that where I'm just like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That level of craft in such a short, you know, few pages. Yeah. Yeah. And Bunter. Bunter gets yes. enormous showing in, in this story. He's really like There's several points where like my note in the margin is just like Bunter in all caps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's really I mean, it really goes into the you know, what we've observed about Peter sending Bunter in when it it wouldn't be like Bunter being able to find information that Peter can't, right? Yeah. Like there's one part where Peter very deliberately, it's after Mr. Deerhurst gets the uh, the message and Peter very deliberately removes himself from the proceedings because it mm-hmm. would not be gentlemanly to eavesdrop on a family row. But he also is like, okay, Bunter, just tell me about it in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> there's also this line where the narrative is just kind of like running down the list of characters right Mm -hmm. and we're getting the description of anthony severin and his his history and the narrative says that whimsy a detective by instinct as well as by training had you know found out all about him by interrogating his own manservant bunter and bunter though he had only been a couple of hours in the house had as usual all the facts at his fingertips (laughs) Again, if Bunter were the detective, there would be no mystery. <laughs> <laughs> Bunter would be in and out. Mm-hmm. Although, I mean, there's also the great line where where Bunter is just like, "I thought you might like to get up." Un- unfortunately, you know, your host is dead. Yeah. <laughs> I took the liberty of waking you early because, you know, like, you're... unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, he's destroyed himself. Just like, oh, oh, Bunter. oh, Bunter, Bunter, Bunter. Yeah, it's uh, maybe not the most sympathetic. Yeah, uh, it's just so he's uh, just professional all the time. Yeah. Um, oh, but here's the other thing that I meant to talk about. You you mentioned the part where Whimsy overhears this row, this, this family conflict going on, and he the actual line is he withdrew backwards with delicate steps like a cat retreating from a lighted cigarette end. <laughs> which I, is a line that I love. And I was just like, I recognize this. 
Mm-hmm. And so I went looking because I knew there was something very similar. Um, and there's a line in Busman's Honeymoon, um, which it's near the beginning. And so like to de- describe this scenario without uh, spoiling things for our listeners who have not gotten that far in the books yet. In Busman's Honeymoon, Peter is in this country house. The country house has a clogged chimney. And someone has decided that the best way to clear a chimney <laughs> is to shoot a rifle up it. Of course. Of course. As one tuss. Yes. And so, like, there's several other people in the room, and they're all kind of watching this guy shoot. You're, like, getting ready to shoot up the chimney. Oops. And, you know, so, like, everyone is watching this happen. And Peter is described as walking backwards like a cat that has stepped and spilt perfume. So, like, it's a very similar line where he's just, like, silently walking backwards because he has figured out that this is going to be catastrophic. Yeah. And, but he's going to let it happen. He's just going to quietly remove himself and mm-hmm. let let it happen. Uh, oh, it's such a funny scene. I'm so excited to get to Bus One's Honeymoon someday <laughs> in 20 years. Um, For our 100th episode. Yes. So, like, I just, yeah. I love that idea that Sayers was just holding on to this mm-hmm. line to, that, image. to yeah. that yeah to that image of peter backing up like a cat mm-hmm. from something and that she saved it all the way until she was writing the last whimsy novel yeah yeah great artists cannibalize from themselves <laughs> yes and i knew that there was another reference to like a description of peter being cat-like mm. and He's often yeah described as sort of prowly that way yeah then so like what i i like i was just like i know that i remember something so I was hunting around for it. And I think that what I was thinking of is the line in Murder Must Advertise, where he's described as, you know, like prowling around like a cat, kind of familiarizing himself with his surroundings. Mm-hmm. And I do like I do love that image and how it ties into like the whimsy coat of arms with the cat. Yeah. And yeah. So I'm just like, I enjoyed that a lot. <laughs> I did notice because we talked about how much I love the line in Whose Body about the the dog with the ear sort of like flipped Mm -hmm. inside out that she reused it in the very next book or like something very, very similar. Yeah. And I was like, hmm, (laughs) unfair. But yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Oh, and but jumping back a little bit, I feel like I'm jumping around a lot, but I keep looking at my notes going like, oh, yeah, and that Mm -hmm. there's this bit in here where like Peter is talking to Anthony Severin and Severin is telling him about how he he learned to read books since his illness which like obviously doesn't mean that he learned how to read but that Mm -hmm. he just like oh I didn't read books before and now I read books yeah and he's just like oh did you it's such a shame that that men are so terrible (laughs) like I never realized how terrible we are to women Uh, but now I'm reading all these feminist things and you know Peter is kind of looking at his his bookshelf and thinking to himself that Anthony's reading was obviously edited with care. Uh-huh. And, you know, on the very next page, there's a reference to Anthony Severin knitting his patient brows horribly over a work by Dorothy Richardson. Uh, <laughs> That's right. I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. And so I was, so I was just like, that name is there for a reason. And so I, I looked Dorothy Richardson up because I wasn't familiar and mm-hmm. well, she's a modernist writer right? yeah and but what I thought was interesting was that she was an early modernist and she wrote with an emphasis on the importance and distinct nature of the female experience mm. which I think is really interesting because 
it kind of plays, you know, like, I think it plays into that idea of focusing on, like, the difference between men and women. And mm-hmm. I think we we talked a little bit about, like, one of the issues that Sayers had with... With the first wave. Yeah, you know. it was with the first wave of the feminist movement was that it focused on the fact that women have a unique contribution you know like Mm -hmm. the idea that women are fundamentally different and special right and Sayers didn't care for that and so I feel like that's this is a a a reference to that oh absolutely yeah and and I think like here specifically in this story that that is kind of backing up this this idea of the men in this story seeing women as only one thing Mm-hmm. Severin sees women as something, you know, special and important and vulnerable and something that, you know, needs to be on a pedestal. And Mr. Deerhurst sees women as they need to, you got to treat them rough. Right. And, and, you know, show them who's boss. You know, like he has that very, very much of an attitude. Mm-hmm. And, and then Peter is kind of between these two men. Peter and Betty Carlisle are on the sideline going not all women are the same <laughs> surprise this whole story would be different if people realized that yeah yeah it's interesting that even though there's something kind of like i don't even know if stereotypical is the right word right but like expected about the way that peter is is sort of like romancing betty carlisle for a bit of fun um like this is kind of him at his most bond-esque i think mm-hmm. Uh, but not in not in like the gross bond way. I don't know. But like there's, you know, I feel like there's something kind of old fashioned about that depiction. But at the same time, they are having all of these intelligent conversations about like the, dif- uh, you know, about how, yeah, how not all women are the same. Mm-hmm. Um, so you do get the sense that even though it, this is like a, a, an easy way to show that Peter is attractive to women and that he mm-hmm likes them and that he's continental like it's the part of his attraction to betty carlisle is that she has a mind yeah right it's not just like oh i would be kissing any you know woman in the countryside that i mm. ran across so actually the opposite of james bond in that way I think yeah was... pretty sure that james bond would kiss a llama if it was wearing a bikini <laughs> very true oh i did want to mention that you know this story really hinges on the fact that peter lies by omission right and Mm -hmm. that he deliberately conceals the evidence that a crime took place you know it like and it i guess it kind of mirrors unnatural death in that way like unnatural death is all about him running around trying to prove that a crime took place Mm -hmm. and this story is about him deliberately concealing the fact that a crime took place and letting people assume that there was a suicide but despite the fact that he chose to conceal the evidence he keeps it Mm-hmm. He keeps all the evidence and he's also shown to be worrying about it when Betty Carlisle comes to see him later after the fact. And it's implied that she comes because there's been this sensational, scandalous murder. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like there's been this murder trial where it's a parallel. Yeah, like there's a, a parallel. A woman situation. drove her lover to kill her husband. Yeah. Yeah. He secured a seat in court throughout the trial. And then he comes home and is sitting there with this volume of Aquinas on his knee, like obviously thinking about the Deerhurst mm-hmm. murder, because find out a page or two later when he's explaining everything to Betty Carlisle that this is the book that has the bullet in it. Like yeah. he's not sitting there reading it. 
No. He's sitting he's there, be, yeah. like, staring at this bullet hole. Yeah. And he, I mean, you know, at the end he tells her because uh, Mr. Severin has died mm-hmm. in the interim, right? I think I think he's killed himself. Yeah, it's um, it's it's implied for sure that he killed mm-hmm. himself. That he overdosed, yeah. Yeah, offic- and... officially it's an accidental overdose, but probably it was mm-hmm. suicide. Yeah. So there is this aspect of like justice has been ser- or you know that mm-hmm. like now that the players are are off stage. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean like I think you could read an inference into that that Peter kind of looked at Anthony Sever and is just like Mrs. Deerhurst is going to drive you to suicide anyway. Mhm. I think that he anticipated that. Yeah. He was just like you're going to be punished anyway. Mm-hmm. And so, like, why should you also suffer the public humiliation of a trial and all of that? Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. So, and that's a hint, I think, of the Peter that we do know. And the I think particularly the Peter that we're going to encounter in Unpleasantness at the Bologna Club. Mm-hmm. And Murder Must Advertise. Yeah. Yeah. I think that we will see echoes of, of this, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. But the idea that, that justice is served ultimately uh, yeah it's gonna be interesting to like talk about those things and then go into talking about best one's honeymoon yeah for sure mm-hmm. but yeah so <laughs> let's move on to listener questions yeah so this one came in on twitter and it's it's something that i think a couple of listeners asked about but at ibm miller wants to know is Michelle Dockery the best current option to play Harriet? Yes or yes, in all caps. <laughs> uh, my answer is actually no. Oh. I like I think that she would be good. I think that Michelle Dockery is fabulous. But I think she's not who I would pick to play Harriet. Hmm. Which is not to say that I don't think she would do a wonderful job, but she's not the type that I would have in mind. Well, who would who would you cast instead? Other than like an unknown, because I don't know that there's anyone that I can think of offhand that I think is just absolutely perfect. But like before I cast mm-hmm. Michelle Dockery, I think that I would try and get Haley Atwell. That was my initial <laughs> thought too. Though though Ian made a really good point that Michelle Dockery does have a certain brittleness, mm-hmm. I think, that yeah. especially early Harriet, when we meet her in Strong Poison, like I can I can really see it after yeah. uh, this particular listener kind of pointed out that aspect. And we know she can sing, so. <laughs> yeah, but when you're doing like, what could so-and-so play such and such part, you know, like a lot of times you're just going like, ooh, do they fit the physical type that I see mm-hmm. in my head? And Michelle Dockery does not. And that's like, I mean, splitting hairs, but, <laughs> uh, but just like in terms of bone structure, she doesn't feel right to me, whereas Haley Atwell does. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like, I do think that Haley Atwell could play, like she could play the the brittleness, but I think that she could also play the, the later Harriet in a way that I have trouble imagining Michelle Dockery doing. So both very fine actresses who would do a wonderful job. But I don't know. And like I other than those two, I, there isn't someone who comes to mind. Mm-hmm. But the answer to that question is we like the idea of Michelle Dockery. We like the idea of Haley Atwell and other listeners can also weigh in. Yeah, I, th- I think that I would lean more towards Haley Atwell, but I also just I love Haley Atwell. Mm-hmm. Don't we all? Yes. Yeah, I, I wonder if she might be a bit too warm for Harriet, but 
maybe it's just because I've seen her play a certain type, you know? Yeah. And I think that the thing about Harriet is that she is a very warm character who has become cold because of circumstances. Mm -hmm. I feel like if you have Michelle Dockery playing her as cold, then it's cold all the way down. Mm -hmm. Whereas I feel like I can imagine Haley Atwell playing her cold, but that warmth is underneath. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> totally. I think the really, my, like, where I really have difficulty is fan casting Lord Peter. Mm, yeah. I feel like everyone who usually gets mentioned, I, like, I can find something wrong with. <laughs> people, people say Tom Hiddleston a lot. I adore Tom Hiddleston, but he's too pretty to be Lord mm-hmm. Peter. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there are a lot of people who they could do, like, I've also heard someone mention John Mulaney. Um, oh, yeah, that would be interesting. Uh, it would be interesting. I feel like it would be lots of silly ass and maybe not enough gravitas behind it. My, my issue with a lot of the people who get brought up for Peter is that I think it's easy to do the puckish silly ass side mm. um, and harder to show a gravitas behind that. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, to me, like John Mulaney is just kind of too young and too light. Right. And too American. And too American. Yes, for sure. <laughs> Now, I did, I saw someone mention Matt Smith, which is not a casting that would have occurred to me, but I've seen a few episodes of The Crown um, mm-hmm. with him. Just glowering all the time. Right. And so, like, knowing from Doctor Who that he can do kind of the silly ass bit, but then mm. also, like, watching The Crown and see him do, like, the aristocratic serious. And so yeah. I'm just like, oh. And also, I feel like he's not conventionally attractive in the in kind of the right way like the maggoty he he has i'm just like he has the right kind of silly face uh but his chin is so, too strong yeah but he, but he has the forehead yeah and he, and he's got he has enough nose like whoever plays peter has to have sufficient nose you know that's true well uh why don't i ask you a question Okay, sounds good. Um, we had an, another question also from Ian, of, which is, what editions are you using and which editions do you like? Mm-hmm. Uh, so again, because I have collected my whimsies very haphazardly. <laughs> so I have, I think, an almost complete set of Kathy Plex's uh, as I mentioned at my parents' house, um, from when I first started reading them, and and those were sort of the widely available ones, and I really like those. I love the illustrations because they they do feel really like perfectly whimsical. I then I think when I kind of rediscovered whimsy in or like you know started reading them really voraciously in grad school, and I was I'd moved away. Uh, I just got them all in Kindle. Um, so I have a full set of Kindle editions and some of these really lovely 1960s, I think Avon editions are what I've been using primarily for making notes as we record the podcast. I have some of the new American, like the reissued American covers, uh, which I do not prefer. I find them a little boring uh, and am also now collecting the new, the like the new British ones with the Art Deco covers, which I really like. So yeah, the answer is all of them. <laughs> <laughs> that is true for me as well. I actually just had to get up and grab off my shelf because I was just like, wait, I don't know for sure. All of my copies until recently have just been also obtained haphazardly. So I have a mix. Let's see, the Perennial Library Editions, which I like overall. Perennial Library from Harper and Row. Mm-hmm. And like, I like the overall design of the books. I don't love the cover 
illustrations, mm-hmm. but I kind of like like the design around them. And then I have some of the Kathy Black covers. I have some. Well, these are also perennial library from Harper and Row. Let's see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they. I think they have, I have two, two separate. Yeah, two separate ones. So I have some of the ones with the the cover designs by Karen Goldberg, with cover illustrations by Marie McCall, hmm. and then I have some perennial library ones that are designed and illustrated by Paul Davis Studio, nineteen eighty seven. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, I'm collecting the new, hotter British editions. Yeah. Thank goodness for bookdepository.com. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Those have been sort of our gifts to ourselves as we've finished yeah. uh, various recordings. But if someone would like to release a beautiful hardcover edition mm, of yes. the entire series, I've seen special editions, but they don't ever seem to be the full set. Mm-hmm. It'll be like yeah. four of the novels. I'm just like, I can't do that. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to ask you another question. Okay. At Frozen Writing Corner on Tumblr asked us, what's your opinion on Agatha Christie? I love her stories, but as a person of color, they can be hard to sit through as so many of them involve racist language slash attitudes. Any recommendations on authors with similar type stories that aren't as dated, perhaps? Ooh. I know I was also really stoked. (laughs) I mean, like the problem with writers from this era is that so many of them fall into the same use of stereotypes mm-hmm. and I can't I mean I kind of feel like Niall Marsh has less certainly not none but maybe mm-hmm. less than Christie and you know Sayers as for modern writers that's tricky because like when I read modern mysteries or modern thrillers I'm not looking for something that replicates that golden age style Feel. yeah mm-hmm. because even like even when it's really well done it still feels contrived because I know that I'm not reading an actual golden age mm. detective you know so like when I'm reading modern mysteries I tend to read stuff like Tana French you know which is a very mm-hmm. different in feel um, di- very different in feel well and contemporary in setting have you read any Flavia Deleuze? I have not. I haven't either. Uh, so I guess we can't. Yeah, neither of us can comment. I'm just like, yeah, those have been recommended to me, but I haven't yeah. read them yet. You know what I would say has kind of the flavor mm. um, and has a mystery element is To Say Nothing of the Dog by Connie Willis. Oh, yeah. Which is so fun. It's so fun. Yeah. It's very, I think... Maybe that's that would be what I would recommend to this listener is check that one out. If other listeners who are maybe more well versed in <laughs> this particular very sliver of a Venn diagram than we are, uh, please do weigh in and we'll you know we'll retweet and yeah so forth. Yeah, I'm like I'm just like oh this is a little bit of a personal fault because mostly I just read Sayers over and over and over again. Same, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, when I read contemporary writers. I tend to read things that are very different mm-hmm. and all the golden age detective writers that I can think of fall into these same pitfalls. Yep. You know, yep. like Nio Marsh might have less, but it's not like I've read every single Nio Marsh book. So I can't say with absolute confidence, mm-hmm. but yeah. Yeah. But Christy and Sayers and Josephine Tay, Josephine Tay, for they, sure. Yeah, yeah. They all fall into that trap where yeah, yeah there's gonna gotta be racism and i mean there's many modern writers also have that problem as well so yeah 
sorry we don't have better recommendations. Yeah. Yeah. But listeners, uh, please let us know if you have any recommendations for us to pass along. Mm-hmm. Um, so the next question for you, Sharon, mm-hmm. um, we had an anonymous uh, question from someone on Tumblr asking, you find a black cat and you decide to name him after a character from a book. What do you name him? Oh. And they don't specify that it needs to be a Sayers. So it right. can be any book. Well, it certainly, yeah. I feel like if it were a white cat, I would name it Mogget from um, yes. <laughs> the Sabriel books by Garth Nix. But... Yeah, which I I can kind of answer this question because I did have a black cat and her name was Sabriel oh, after yeah, the Garth Nix book. That's right. Yes, that's excellent. If it can be a media property based off of a book, because I did not actually <laughs> read the books, um, but I would absolutely name a black cat Toothless from How to Train Your Dragon. Oh, yeah. So cute. Yeah. If I were naming a black cat after a character from Sayers, mm-hmm. if it was like a sleek black cat, I think mm-hmm. I would name it Bunter. But you already I, have a robot vacuum named I know Bunter. I have a robot. I know I have a robot <laughs> vacuum named Bunter. And it's very sleek. Um, but if it was a oh. fluffy black cat, that would be different. No, 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 Karis. If it were a sleek what? black cat, it could be Mrs. Myrtle. Oh, yeah. Peter's car. Yeah. <laughs> if it were, and if it were like a fluffy, like a small fluffy black cat, I think I would name it after the Dowager Duchess. Honoria? Yeah. I like oh. Honoria. Yeah. I like the name of, I like the idea of it being Honor- Honoria and calling calling it your grace (laughs) that's that's very Mm. funny to me yeah okay um now now i'm just imagining like what type of cat i would name (laughs) because because like when i got my cat there were people who were just like we'll name it harriet after harriet vane and i was like no you don't understand my cat is gray and Mm -hmm. harriet is a name for brown cat like i just feel very strongly that (laughs) You, like only a brown cat should be named Harriet. Should it's be Harriet. a right. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a brunette name in my mind. <laughs> I don't I don't know why. I you know uh, just yeah. Like why are why is every Elizabeth Bennet a brunette even though Austin never says what her hair color is? It's be, mm. it's be, it's because Elizabeth is a a brunette name. Yes. And Amber is a blonde name. I don't make the rules. I just know what you they are instinctively. <laughs> Uh, but I was just like, you know, like an orange tabby could be Parker mm-hmm. and um, like a big, a big white tomcat could be Sir Empey. <laughs> yes. Or I feel like a, a t- like a big tuxedo cat. Oh, yeah. Empey, right? Yeah, you're right. A, a tuxedo cat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, OK. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, at Tentacosaurus from Twitter would like to know, there are some big and obvious recurring themes and motifs in the novels, i.e. Peter's PTSD or gender politics. Are there any small and or surprising recurring things you noticed in your close reading? Uh, which I feel like we could do a whole episode. On. Oh, yeah. We could just go on and on. Yeah. I mean, we've brought some of them up, right? Yeah. Like the attention to servants. Um, yeah. The attention to servants, the, you know, hints about the interiority of even minor characters mm-hmm. and the like how obvious it, it is when that's missing. <laughs> um, I think the, the small thing about the gender relations, you know, like even when it's very small, 
Mm-hmm. Obviously, like gender relations and gender politics is a big theme, but I think sometimes it's handled in small ways that I think are really interesting. Yeah. I also think it's interesting how often Peter uses biblical quotes. Mm-hmm. That's something that's recurring and things like that that I'm I see tying into Sayers the theologian. Yeah, which will be a, a thread that she develops mm-hmm. later on in her career. Yeah, you know we kind of talked about like the the detective is the the moral judge, mm-hmm. the the moral authority is the detective, and so like it's it's interesting for Peter to be this character who's fundamentally you know like by the nature of the genre kind of a moral center who himself struggles with morality who also quotes biblical things constantly mm-hmm. just like mm, all those things kind of like wind together in a really interesting way yeah um i know i feel like i have some threads but they would all be sort of giving things away from yeah books, so. yeah we don't want to spoil too we'll much. just yeah we'll we'll bring those up as they as they come so our friend Amanda asked, if you could insert yourself as a random background character, what or who would you be and in what story? Mm, that's a good one. I, I have an answer for you. Yeah? Okay. I think that she would be a member of the senior common room at Aww. Shrewsbury. <laughs> On a spiritual level, that's where you belong. Yeah, that's that's very That was sort of where my mind immediately leaped to. Is mm-hmm. At least that's the book I would most want to be in. <laughs> A random ba- background and definitely a member of the senior common room and not yes. an undergraduate. Yes. <laughs> uh, otherwise, maybe I would like to be the person who makes Mr. Murbles' hats. <laughs> uh, what about you? I mean, like, short of just being like, also just like, yes, I would like to be a member of the senior common yes, room. Yes, of also. course. Where you also belong. <laughs> I think. Hmm. Like if like if I had to choose like a minor character from the actual books to be, mm-hmm. I think it would be Marjorie, who's a character that we haven't encountered yet, but we will oh, yes. in um we will soon because I'm just like she just seems nice, she's artistic, she is yeah, and I like her yeah. Um, but if I were creating a random background character, would you want to work at the advertising agency? I was just thinking about that, and I think not. (laughs) People seem too stressed. Uh, It seems like a little bit of a stressful environment. Although, I mean, like, fun, but I don't, it's not something I think that I would want to do long term. I don't know. Mm. I'm really, I'm kind of stumped. Yeah. I I mean, like, being like, oh, yes, I'd want to be a member of the senior common room is kind of easy. Mm -hmm. But... I don't know. Maybe you know, like maybe what I would want to be would be like one of the Shrewsbury alum, mm. you know, like yeah. who, who come to the gaudy. Yeah. And well, you'd be Phoebe you know, like, Tucker. <laughs> yes. The one that still is exercising her brain, not yeah. one of the ones that Harriet's so disappointed in. Yeah. Right. Yeah. One of the one of the the ones who who went on to have a positive life, <laughs> a positive and fulfilling life, or mm-hmm. um. Or, you know, like, in Gaudy Night, Harriet Vane goes to, like, that literary party. Oh, yeah. The unnamed friend that she's going to visit, who's apparently the type of person to throw that type of party. I'm just like, that person. (laughs) They seem to have a good thing going on. Yeah. Though Sayers does poke a lot of fun at, like, her contemporaries. Yes. Yes. (laughs) The The... silliness of their books. (laughs) Kind of the pastiche of of artistic salons. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, which we haven't gotten to yet, but or I'd want to be friends with like a Lunid Price and yeah. um, 
I just blanked uh, on me. Sylvia? Is it yes. Sylvia? Yeah, yeah. Sylvia, Sylvia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think I'd want to be like part of their set and be friends with them. Yeah, yeah. Or we could both be um, cattery agents with Oh, with yes. Oh, no, you're right. I take back all my other answers. <laughs> I want to be in the cattery. Oh, yay. Yes, I want to work with Miss Clemson. Yes. That's what I want. You'd be very good at it. <laughs> I want to be Miss Clemson's assistant. <laughs> Amanda asked another question that I'm also curious about, which she was she was wondering how has um, Sayers's writing, or maybe even particularly with the the Peter books, influenced how you operate in real life? Oh, because clearly these are very important stories to us, right? Like we we care about them so much that we want to mm-hmm. talk about them for hours and then spend hours editing and transcribing <laughs> <laughs> and get other people to listen to them. There's a lot of devotion going on here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's some of those, you know, like when you when you start reading something when you're young, it can be hard to track how it influences mm-hmm. you because it's just been there doing it quietly for so long. But I do think I credit Zayers with just being a part of like my kind of personal moral awareness mm. because, you know, like we see Peter go through an arc of self-discovery about himself and about like his moral choices and where those choices come from Mm -hmm. reading about that and having that all explored is fascinating to me Mm -hmm. and I think you know like brought up questions that maybe I would have explored on my own eventually but that was the first thing that brought them to mind Mm -hmm. so you know started that thought process going yeah yeah. I think for me, uh, I mean, certainly the question that Harriet is asking in Gaudy Night, right, of like, what is the appropriate balance between the head and the heart mm-hmm. uh, was was a big part of my, like, I, I think I kind of hit on that book at exactly the right time in my personal life where I was asking those questions too and sort of asking like as a you know, as an intelligent woman who at the time wanted to be in academia, um, mm-hmm. I mean, certainly not you know, there weren't quite as many restrictions uh, now as there were for, for women then, thankfully, but really kind of, I don't know, I found it really encouraging that the books and like a whole set of readers who loved these books very much believed in the idea of like a an intellectually equal relationship between men and women. Yeah. Um, I think that was really important for me to, to see modeled in fiction and through various readers I knew who, you know, for whom like the Peter Harriet relationship was so important for that reason, just as I was at the point in my own life where I started making romantic choices, I I should Mm -hmm. say. Yeah. Mm. So that was a big influence. Yeah. And so let's do one more. This is a question from our friend Nia who asks, how has time and life experience changed how you appreciate the characters in the whimsy novels? Which ones do you connect with more now versus your first reading? Hmm. I think I certainly appreciate Bunter more. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate Bunter more and more. Yes. Like the more that I've, you know, had to sort of like run my own life and household. I'm like, oh gosh, Bunter's just doing all the work. (laughs) Oh, to have a Bunter. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We would, I would get much more done every day if I had a Bunter, (laughs) I think. I think, I mean, time and life experience has certainly deepened 
my appreciation of the books and of the characters as, you know, I think I started reading them as just they're, they're fun, pleasant mysteries. They have some themes that I really appreciate, as I just mentioned. But with more time, I think I just really have come to see how much depth Sayers puts mm-hmm. in all these characters. I think there are aspects of just as you get older, as you go through more things, like I, I certainly, I think, I think I understand the character of Peter a little bit better. And I, I really appreciate how much Sayers was thinking through that this is a traumatized character. Mm-hmm. And I feel like she's, she's pretty, she's like really responsible with that, right? Of like, without making any judgments on, on the rightness or the wrongness of how he copes with that trauma, she's, she presents this character very fully formed to us of, of like, these are all the ways that Peter's life was like so disrupted and informed by what he went through in the war. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think you know, like that's really similar for me mm-hmm. as well. You know, reading the books when I was younger, I just really, you know, I enjoyed the mystery. I enjoyed the relationship between Peter and Harriet and reading them deeply as an adult. I really have a new appreciation for the complexity. Mm-hmm. And I feel like do like doing the close reading that we're doing now for this podcast is giving me a new appreciation for on a very like line by line level, like mm-hmm. technical appreciation yeah, the for yeah, the craftsmanship yeah. that Sayers mm-hmm. is putting into her work. We didn't start this podcast going like we know a lot about Sayers. <laughs> like we have a lot of knowledge to pass on. You know, like in the course of doing this, I feel like I'm learning a lot about Sayers herself. Mm-hmm. And when we poke around doing research for our episodes or you know, like when people share things with us when we get the opportunity to do things like read Mo Moulton's book, mm-hmm. it broadens my understanding. And that brings a whole new element to the way I read the stories as well. Because as much as I appreciate uh, reading things like we, you know, like the death of the author, mm-hmm. I also am really interested in why thing like why authors write the things that they write and yeah. what, circumstances you know like might have like brought those ideas to the the forefront and I I feel like I'm learning a lot more about that and to Mm -hmm. me that like enriches the whole reading experience in new ways which is really fun and yeah like to be still reading these books after (laughs) years Mm -hmm. (laughs) lots of years um because Gosh, I've I've been reading them since I was a teenager, and now I'm an old lady. <laughs> You're not an old lady. I'm so old. <laughs> Put you on the shelf. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. We're getting close to twenty years of me reading yeah. Sayers. Yeah. Probably I'm not probably not quite twenty, but getting there. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that I am reading these books again and finding so much new stuff to think about and to talk about. Mm-hmm that's like that's amazing yeah yeah I think I mean when you were talking about sort of having more contacts it it kind of made me reflect too like yeah I you know I'm sure there is some aspect of reading and loving these books that partially informed my desire to do like my field specialty in modernism Mm -hmm. in grad school but also you know I mean it's a bit like a snake eating its own tail right like growing a certain kind of expertise about the historic and societal and political movements that were informing literary modernism now, like coming back and 
reading sayers with that lens, Mm -hmm. I think has, has also opened up the books in a way that I found really personally rewarding and enriching of just like, oh yeah, all these things that, you know, maybe I'd even assumed she was separate from in high modernism, like, you know, finding, oh no, she's doing all this stuff. You know, she's doing all this experimentation as well. That's been, that's been really cool to think about. Mm -hmm. So Not picking back up that dissertation, though. No way. No. (laughs) They should have just given it to you. Uh, I'll just submit um, all, you know, thousand pages of transcripts that we'll have by the time this is over. (laughs) So thank you again to Laura Schmidt from the Wade Center Mm -hmm. and to Tony Medawar for speaking with Karis about bodies from the library. Yes, and the locked room manuscript. And, yeah, and again, you can find the, the transcript of that conversation in our show notes. Mm-hmm. And we'll be back in two weeks with our first of three, possibly more, <laughs> <laughs> episodes about the unpleasantness at the Bologna Club. Yes, we will see you. Well, we won't see you. Uh, but we will chat with you again in 2020, which is a real year now. Ah! <laughs> Uh, Happy holidays, (laughs) Karis. Happy holidays.